Hi, this is Andrew Miller, and this is another episode of The Tingle Zone. We're doing something a little bit different with this episode because I'm actually going to go on a bit of a hiatus with the podcast. I've got plenty of people lined up that want to uh, take part as guests, but I'm actually having a slight tweak, change and shift in direction. Uh, you may notice from some of my profiles that I'm focusing very much on child-free entrepreneurs, so people who uh, either don't have children through choice, unable to have children for some reason, uh, or have had children and those children have now left home and uh, they've got something else to focus on. Uh, in other words, uh, people who don't have children as their main focus in their lifestyle. Now, the underlying principles still stand the same, uh, finding purpose and uh, Finding what it is that makes your bits tingle is just as important for those uh, people as well. And if not more so, uh, because in a lot of cases, people do find that family is the thing that drives them. So when you don't have family, what is that extra touch? So I'm going to do a few things over the next few months, and I will probably come back with the podcast just with a slight little tweak, a slight little twist. <laughs> Uh, but for now, what I thought I would do is uh, as a special gift to uh, uh, those that have kept listening to this show, I'm going to share with you my story. A, a couple of years ago, I uh, contributed to a book called Transforming Your Life, Volume 3, in which I ran through my background, where I came from, uh, the challenges I went through, and what I went through to uncover my purpose. And again, as somebody who doesn't have children, uh, that extra little nuance uh was required to to go a little bit deeper a little bit sooner than maybe I would have done if I'd had a family and that's why I'm looking in that space so what I'm going to play for you is the audio version of that uh, that chapter and um hopefully you'll find it interesting or uh, you might some find stuff about me you didn't know before but at least whatever happens you'll get an understanding of where I've come from and why I'm doing what I'm doing so do keep an eye on my LinkedIn profile to see what's coming up in that space if you're interested in such things. But for now, sit back, relax, think about what makes your bits tingle, and most of all, enjoy. Born for Purpose by Andrew Miller I'm proud to say that I have had three birthdays. Okay, maybe not in the traditional sense, but for me, there are three key dates in my life where my eyes were opened, a new life started, and things were never the same again. My name is Andrew Miller, and I am the founder of Business Enjoyment. I am on a mission to change the way that success is measured in the world, and I would like to share with you my story. I want to explain how I uncovered my purpose, and hopefully inspire some people who aren't normally inspired. Birthday number one, West Sussex, England, 17th of August, 1971. This is my actual birthday, as we would all generally understand it. I think it's important that I start right at the beginning, because I believe that we are all products of our life story. The younger of two brothers, I grew up in a normal town in England, reasonably intelligent, reasonably sporty, reasonably hardworking. I just got on and did things. Sure, there were some ups and downs, but on the whole, we were a happy family, had some lovely holidays. I made some great friends and generally had a really nice childhood. Not exactly the basis of a major Hollywood blockbuster, I'm sure you'll agree. Despite that, this normality is actually a critical part of the story. I had become a big believer in uncovering one's purpose in life. The thing that really creates focus and motivation, enables you to shift into flow much more easily, 
and the generator of an important side effect. It allows you to truly enjoy life. In the majority of cases, this purpose is uncovered as a result of a serious trauma or tragedy. The equal rights campaigner that suffered awful levels of prejudice and victimization. The anti-drugs activist that nearly died of an overdose. The business guru who built his empire out of the ashes of insolvency. These are the types of stories that we're used to hearing. For me, whilst I've always been impressed by the inspirational stories that fill our bookshelves, computer screens and conference stages, I've rarely been truly inspired. Because I couldn't relate to the person telling the tale. No one in my family has ever gone bust. We had no dramas about anyone being addicted to anything. And the only prejudice I had to suffer was Jane Austen. I have therefore found myself asking the question, is it possible to uncover that sense of purpose and meaning without having to experience the trauma? By sharing my story, I want to provide an answer to that question and show you that everyone has the capability of tapping into that internal motivational force, even those who had a boring life. A life to which I now return. We'll pick things up from when I left university, which saw me holding a first class maths degree, fluent in French and no idea as to what I wanted to do. After genuinely drifting through various dead-end temporary jobs, I finally got a call out of the blue from a recruitment agency asking me if I'd like to go for an interview with the insolvency department of KPMG. I said, what's an insolvency? And who are KPMG? For those of you who, like me at the time, are not in the know, KPMG is one of the largest accountancy and consulting companies in the world. I passed the interview and thus began my start of a 17-year journey within the incredibly specific and unique world of corporate insolvency. At this point, I need to do some explaining. Most people are vaguely aware of the concept of insolvency, but unless you've had first-hand experience on either side of the fence, very few people really understand what it is. Also, the process in the UK is dramatically different to the rest of Europe and the United States, where it's all conducted by lawyers in corporate offices. In the UK, the work is a lot more hands-on. First of all, let's explain some basics through an analogy. You know how you have a mortgage on your house and if you don't keep up repayments on that mortgage, the bank can call in the loan and repossess your house? It's that, but with companies. A bank will loan money to a company to fund its growth and allow continued trading. This is often done by way of a corporate mortgage. The technical term is a debenture, meaning that in effect, the bank owns the assets of the company until the debt is repaid. Should the company get into financial difficulties, the bank has the power to call in that debt and take possession of the company. In real terms, they will appoint a specialist accountant, an insolvency practitioner, who replaces the directors of the company. This accountant's job is then to realise the assets for as much money as possible and distribute the funds to creditors. 
The company usually retains most of its value by being kept intact, which means that it's very common for the accountants to trade the company whilst looking for a buyer. The trading insolvency is incredibly intense, a lot of hard work and thoroughly exhilarating. You instantly become responsible for everything. And I mean everything. From running the production line to making sure the photocopier still gets serviced. You have to quickly assess what is going on, get the employees and suppliers on board, most of whom are owed money, secure the support of customers and introduce your own systems and procedures so that you know exactly what is going on. The first few days, weeks are full of firefighting as you wrestle to gain control. The queries, issues and complaints are fired at you thick and fast and complex commercial decisions have to be made on the spot. You often have to make some very tough decisions which can impact a lot of people's livelihoods. Money is the driving factor at all times, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible to carry out your duties in a humane and understanding way. I've been on jobs where we've had Christmas cards from the staff. It was at Christmas, just to be clear. And strangely, it's not unusual for people to thank me when I've made them redundant. This is because I'd kept them updated with what was going on and they knew that I had done my best to keep the business going. As for how I handled the emotional turmoil personally, I found that I was very good at compartmentalizing and not letting the stressful elements of the work get me down. As my career developed, the commercial experience I gained was immense. I ran businesses of all shapes and sizes, from bigger halls to shopping centres, via the construction of oil rigs and the production of pet food. As I progressed, I got to work all around the UK, in Europe, and even two years working in Australia and the Far East. I rose steadily through the ranks, doing interesting, challenging work, was respected by my peers and was paid very well with good prospects. I was, as far as the world was concerned, a success. That did not mean, however, that I was happy. Birthday number two, Hampshire, England, 18th of October, 2005. It was at a team building event that everything changed. We undertook a number of exercises, one of which was around values. You're probably familiar with the concept. We're given two pieces of paper and on one piece of paper, we were instructed to write down all of our values, the things that we hold to be important to us. On the other piece of paper, we were to write down the values of the firm. Not the ones that were stuck on the walls of the offices, but the actual values that we saw being played out on a daily basis. We then ran through an exercise whereby we looked at how we could bring them more closely into an alignment. An exercise that I never completed. I just stood there, staring at both bits of paper, thinking, surely there must be an overlap somewhere. As this information filtered through my brain and body, it suddenly hit me. Oh yeah, I hate my job. I realised that whilst there were moments of enjoyment in the job, these were actually few and far between. Outside of a trading insolvency, it was mostly admin work, all form filling, letter writing and paper filing. Meanwhile, the jobs themselves were all very similar and generally consisted of long hours, huge pressure and filled with lots of angry creditors shouting at me. How had I not seen this before? 
over time, I came to realize that this lack of awareness is quite common. From birth, we are conditioned to believe that work isn't meant to be fun or enjoyable. We're told to focus on doing the best we can, to progress as high as we can, and ultimately earn as much as we can. That is what success is meant to be. Enjoyment doesn't enter into it. Now that my eyes were opened, I was really clear that I didn't want to do this anymore. The only problem was, I didn't know what I did want to do. At the end of the day, I was earning good money and I liked the people I worked with. Just quitting and going off to find myself didn't seem like the best strategy. I was just going to have to work out what I wanted to do whilst being employed. The universe then did what it does at times, noticed the arrival of the new me and popped in to say hello, because within days I was offered a new role. It's only with hindsight that the relevance became clear, but it turned out that this role would lead me directly to where I am today. The title of the role was People Management Leader. Basically, my job was to help team members with anything that wasn't connected directly with a project. Motivation, confidence, conflict, personal issues, you name it. I was the go-to person for whatever it was that they might need. Rare was the time that I could take a walk across the office without someone coming up to me and saying, um, could I just ask you something in private, please? Leading to a conversation around some sort of personal crisis that they were facing. This all had to be done on top of the day job, and many of my colleagues thought that I had been given this role as some sort of punishment. I, however, loved it. Sitting down with people and helping them deal with issues that they were facing right now and seeing immediate changes in them was so much better than all the other things I had to do. Plus, I was actually quite good at it. Part of the role included collaborating with my equivalents in different departments. As I got to know some of these people better, I started opening up about my job dissatisfaction and from these discussions came two important points. First of all, the more I talked to people about not enjoying what I do, the more people opened up to me about them not enjoying what they do either. This is what led me to wondering, does anyone actually enjoy their job? It was clear that it didn't matter how successful anybody was in their career, it was not the same as leading a happy and fulfilling life. Secondly, I got to hear about coaching. This was a term that I was completely unfamiliar with in a business context, but the more I investigated it, the more I liked the sound of it. It turned out that my day job in insolvency had been developing some of the key skills. When you go in and take over the company, you don't pretend to be an expert in that industry. Instead, it's about working with the existing team and challenging some of their habits and decisions, ensuring it fits into an overall strategy. Combining that with my humane approach, and I was in a great place to explore the world of coaching. It was not a quick process, however. The time taken from that moment of realization to actually getting out was the best part of five years, including enough drama and twists and turns to fill a book by itself. The Cliff Notes version is that in that period, 
I managed to maneuver myself into pole position for an internal coaching role. The contract was written, the ink was dry, and all that was needed was a rubber stamp of approval. It was at precisely that point, as I straddled the threshold between heaven and hell, that a perfect storm of a corporate merger, a global recession, and the tragic death of a key individual slammed the door in my face and kicked me straight back to where I had started. To be strictly truthful, there had been some changes. I had now been promoted and headed up our trading and property team, a position I used to justify the need for getting some coaching training, which meant that the firm approved my enrolment into two coaching diplomas. Much of what I learned on those courses, I brought back to the team, pulling together training sessions around team dynamics, goal setting, beliefs. And all that put me in prime position to develop some training courses that rolled out across the country. Plus, I was actually coaching people as part of the practical element of my course. But all of this was just a light relief amongst the darkness. It is hard to convey the emotions you feel when you have everything that you've ever wanted just within your grasp only to have them ripped away from you with no hope of a return mentally i was not present and when you know you are in the wrong job you come to really hate it which pays a heavy toll on your psyche it would be wrong for me to say that i had depression that is a serious disorder and the term is frequently used inappropriately. However, I was definitely not in a good place. The eating and drinking increased and the weight piled on. A knee injury I'd suffered at school started flaring up and I found myself on crutches almost as often as I was off them. As a team leader, part of my job was to motivate everyone else and help them with their ongoing issues. It was ironic therefore that I was in such a bad place myself. So much so that every single day as I drove into the office, I would feel horribly sick, literally retching, dreading the day ahead. I finally reached a decision to leave on the basis of a conversation I had with a fellow student of coaching. She had decided to quit her job, start up as a coach and damn the consequences, even though she had just found out she was pregnant. Driving home, I just kept thinking, if she can do it, why can't I? Our financial position is pretty strong. No mortgage, savings on one side. And if I were to leave and it didn't work, I'd be able to get re-employed pretty easily with my experience. So no real risk. Really, what is stopping me? I decided to wait until the end of the year to make sure I got paid the annual bonus. Quite useful if you're about to launch into a world of uncertainty. The fact that I was in such a bad place meant that it was quite ironic that I actually received my best ever appraisal grading, along with a large pay rise, which meant it came as an even bigger shock to the department when I then handed in my notice. I was one of the longest serving members within the office on a six figure package, working in one of the few industries that was actually growing in the middle of the largest recession the world had seen in a century. What an excellent time to leave to set up your own business. Deciding to set up a coaching practice is one thing, but what kind of coach? There are so many to choose from. 
after exploring lots of different options, I came out to exploring a niche that basically didn't exist. Still doesn't, as far as I'm aware. Combining my 17 years of experience at KPMG with my new direction, I focused on helping business owners that were going through financial difficulty or insolvency, but helping them cope with the emotional consequences that arise. Traditionally, the industry is only interested in the business side of things. The director is treated as an add-on that either helps insolvency practitioner or is got rid of. They are often viewed as being obstinate, obstructive, or stupid. Sometimes all three. The external perception from those owed money or from the media is even worse. At best, they are considered incompetent. At worst, they are accused of being criminals or inhuman monsters. The truth of the matter is that whilst there are always going to be crooks and incompetents in all walks of life, the majority of directors whose companies fall into insolvency are genuine, decent, caring individuals. The business is their child and they've done everything they can to keep it going, often by paying out everyone else as much as they possibly can at the expense of their own financial well-being. As they watch everything they've built collapse in front of their eyes, they go through the same range of emotions that any parent would watching the death of their child. Shock, denial, anger, grief. Is it any wonder that external parties such as the bank or the accountants don't get to see them in their best light? If they do lose the business, many directors end up experiencing intense feelings of shame and guilt. Attempting to do anything new could throw up a crippling lack of confidence. Over time, it is easy for someone to drift into depression or worse. I don't know what the actual statistics are, but there are very few insolvency practitioners that aren't aware of at least one suicide. It is my belief that by helping these directors with their emotional stress as early as possible, three potential benefits could emerge. Firstly, they might be more open with the bank and the accountants at the beginning. When scared, the tendency is put up the walls, be defensive and not trust anyone. The more open they become, the more likely it is that the parties can cooperate and the chances of saving the business increase. Secondly, if the business does have to go, then the director wouldn't sit around at home getting depressed and living off the state. Instead, they would get up and start running a new business, employing more people and contributing to society again. Thirdly, from my experience, those that went through such an experience gained a better appreciation of what was important in life. They became more mindful, more generous and more philanthropic. Consequently, by helping these people get through the hard times and become more successful, society as a whole would benefit. That was a theory anyway. Actually making it happen was, as ever, a different concept. Going direct to those in difficulty was always going to be hard as the head is already in the sand. Most of my work was going to have to come from the professionals advising the companies. However, most of them either didn't understand what I was trying to do or didn't keep it in front of mind as they went about their hectic schedules. Consequently, I found it very difficult to pick up any work. 
I remember going to a networking event where there was a presentation from a marketing expert on how to use LinkedIn to connect with your ideal client. All you do is find the groups where your ideal client hangs out, they explained, and get involved. Take part in discussions, add value, and get known. Over time, you'll attract your ideal clients. That's great, I thought. Works really well in principle. Unfortunately, there is not a LinkedIn group for business owners that are about to go bust. However, as I pondered the concept, I turned the thought around and wondered, if such a group did exist, what would it look like? I quickly made a leap to something that might be feasible. Instead of people about to go through it, there may be interest for those who had been through it. It taps into the human desire to share war stories and pass on information to others. Exploring the thought further, I abandoned the social media element and realised that I could just find these people myself. If I interviewed them and uncovered their personal experiences, I could create blogs and articles that would explain what I was doing, why help was needed, and what people in similar situations could do about it. I sent out the word and it was amazing the number of people that I knew that were approaching me to tell their tale. And neither I nor anyone in our network had had any awareness of their experiences. As the interviews progressed, I started seeing similar patterns arising between their stories. Common threads of emotional reaction and positive action that could be taken at different stages of the process. Eventually, I realised that with a combination of the interviews and my own experience and knowledge around the subject, I had enough material for a lot more than just a few articles. There was a book in this. Not something I'd ever done before and no idea how to do it. With a bit of research, finding a few people who <laughs> knew what they were doing and a bit of discipline on my part, my first book was self-published in October 2012. Hope Won't Pay the Wages was the first, and to my knowledge only, self-help book for people in financial difficulty and one that focuses on the emotional stresses. Helping them develop the mindsets required to make it through an insolvency mentally intact. Like any business book, it was never intended to be a money maker in itself, but now I could explain to people what I was trying to do. In addition, the book acted as a great intervention tool for advisors and accountants. Look, they could say, don't take my word for it. This person was in exactly the same position you are now. See what they have to say about it. Working with a PR agent, we started getting my name out there. I began writing articles for magazines and was invited for interviews on the radio. Eventually, we even managed to gain the attention of the government. I met up with a representative from the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills and put forward a proposal. A support network of experienced business owners, coaches and counsellors that could offer support to every director of an insolvent company. Whilst funding would be required to run the operation, the benefit to the country overall was undeniable. They were impressed and liked the way I was interested in the person, not just the processes and systems. A few weeks later, I was formally invited to become a policy advisor to the government in the area of business failure. Once again, things were falling into place. Once again, my dreams were being realised. Once again, it all went wrong. The government thing never happened. 
one never expects them to move quickly on these things but when i followed up their invitation people had moved on and the focus had shifted not long after there was a general election a change of government and that was that meanwhile i wasn't earning much money from my chosen area despite having done all the things that the marketing gurus tell you to do I had a niche so tight that I'd truly created a category of one, a unique individual with a unique set of skills and experience and offering a unique service. A service that was most certainly needed and every person I did work with was incredibly grateful for what I was able to offer them. I was a published author. I don't want to come across as arrogant or biased, but it's a genuinely good book that has massively helped people in need. I had a good profile, writing articles for magazines, doing presentations around the country and talking to the media. Every ingredient required in the recipe of success and none of it was working. One of the messages in my book is that you have to work with reality, not fantasy. Sometimes if things aren't working, you just have to stop, accept it and move on which is exactly what I did. Birthday number three, London, England, 9th of September, 2017. Whilst I had had some clients in the insolvency sector that I'd created, much of the work that I was actually getting paid for was with ordinary business owners just looking to improve what they were doing. So I shifted towards more standard small business coaching. At the same time, I started to look at myself and the patterns that I was running. I had all the skills, the knowledge and the wherewithal to be successful. I got great results with my clients and people found me to be approachable, interesting and engaging. Yet there was still something missing. I was spending a lot of time helping people, but not seeing much in terms of results for me. Either people would disappear once the subject of money arose or I would make ridiculous concessions to ensure we carried on working together. Lots of effort, little reward. Was it possible that I was too nice? Was I lacking the killer instinct needed to follow up on the leads and get them across the line? Certainly, I didn't want to be that pushy salesperson that forced people into doing something that they didn't want. Did I have some sort of fear around success? It certainly felt like I was self-sabotaging somewhere along the line. One specific fear that I knew I had was around phoning people. I just couldn't do it. Even if it was a close personal friend, the only way I could make a call was if I'd prearranged it in advance. Anything outside of that would trigger anxiety and a churning knot in the stomach. I tried coaching, counselling and even hypnotherapy. Initially, it made little difference, but I was able to understand that I had a deep-seated fear of rejection, which had led me into becoming a people pleaser. What can I do to make you happy so that you'll like me, even if it's at my own expense? This has been coloured by a few other experiences throughout my life. My dad yelling at me when I'd interrupted his conversation. A career where I was the person that people least wanted to meet and having to call creditors to tell them that they weren't going to get paid. Eventually, I realised that the phone phobia was not actually about the phone. It was a fear of interrupting people. From my experience, when I interrupted someone's day, 
It led to them being angry or upset, which I took as rejection. The telephone was just the most common medium. When I thought about it, I couldn't knock on doors or break into conversations at networking events either. Even posting letters through doors was uncomfortable for me. However, with the telephone, you are completely blind as to what the other person is doing, and the brain instantly assumes that they'll be doing something important, which means that the last thing that they want is to be interrupted by me. Unless, of course, it had been agreed in advance. Having identified the issue, I started exploring deeper therapies to help resolve things, and finally, progress was made. More than that, I was now aware of new ways to help people, and I threw myself into researching and learning the different therapies that were around. For most of my life, it had all been about numbers, processes, and strategy. Then I learned about mindsets, beliefs, and personality profiles. Now I was learning about subconscious patterns, energy healing, and techniques such as tapping. I wanted to use these new tools to go deeper into myself, removing my hidden problems and to be in a position to help others with theirs. It became clear that everyone had some sort of deep block or hidden pattern. By equipping myself with a wider range of skills, I was able to help people at all levels of the success spectrum improve and develop. Still, though, there was something missing. I would read these books which kept going on about finding your why, and I never knew what mine was. Whenever people asked me what I wanted, you know, really wanted, my answer was vague. I just wanted to help people. I couldn't really be more specific than that. At no point could I say what my purpose was or get clear about the direction I was going in. And whilst I was motivated and felt good around what I was doing, there wasn't any sort of burning passion that drove me onwards. Should there be one? What does it mean if I don't find it? On the advice of another coach, I started to think about the clients that I'd done my best work with. Those that I really connected with and where my work seemed instinctive and effortless. What sort of person were they? What were they looking for? And what did they get from working with me? As well as being a good exercise for identifying future ideal clients, I thought it might also reveal clues as to what my purpose was. I thought long and hard about those handful of clients that were really magical to work with. After much consideration, I realised that they weren't really coming to me for more sales or a bigger business. That was often the consequence, but it was a fortunate byproduct. Instead, they were coming to me because they weren't happy in their business. And by the end of our time together, they were enjoying life and business so much more. This was where the concept of business enjoyment came from. I started calling myself a business enjoyment coach to see how people reacted. And in the main, it was pretty positive. It stood out as being something different and desirable, leading people to ask for more information. Everyone innately understood that if you're not enjoying your business, then what's the point? You might as well get a job. Over time, I developed a business enjoyment model and even the semblance of a purpose to change the measure of success. Talk to anyone for any length of time and you will find that what really matters to them is something much more than just money. Sure, a level of security is important, but it's also about family, connections, 
relationships. It's about knowing that you're doing a good job, adding value and making a difference. Ultimately, it's about enjoying what you do. This made sense to me and it resonated with people when I said it. Could I have found my purpose, my mission? It certainly made sense in my head. I still didn't feel it. There still wasn't that burning passion that everyone kept talking about. What was I still missing? It would have been easy for me to stop exploring at this point. Did it really matter? I believed in it. I was being authentic and it was a plausible marketing message. Was it really a problem that I didn't feel an electric spark when I thought about it? Well, one thing I know about us humans is it's very easy for us to settle, to make do with what we've got. Don't rock the boat. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. This, however, is playing safe. It doesn't allow us to uncover those extra bits that make life so worthwhile. I decided not to settle and instead to keep exploring. To do that, I needed to dig deeper. Around this time, I enrolled in a group coaching program with the international coach, Rich Litvin, author of the book, The Prosperous Coach. He was someone who I respected a lot and I liked his approach to marketing and selling, being very service-led and non-pushy. As I was forming all these new ideas and patterns, the opportunity to get one of his group coaching programs arose. It was going to be a lot of money, a lot of money, but it felt right. I took the plunge and committed to it. Part of the programme included tickets to one of the intensives he runs. At the event I attended, he'd arranged a really deep session that was being run by some associates of his that specialised in getting people really connected to their emotions. In the group calls, we'd been exploring this concept of me not being emotionally connected to my mission. And in fact, I wasn't that emotionally connected to very much. Remember me saying that I was good at compartmentalising? It was more than that. Most of the deeper emotions just rebounded off my walls without making a dint. When exploring an exercise around what makes me cry, to tap into what really moves and motivates me, the genuine answer was not much. As I got ready for this deep session, I decided that what would help me most would be if I could access those deeper emotions. I therefore set the ability to cry as an intention for the session and made sure I told lots of attendees. That way, not only was I accountable, but by getting really clear on my objective, my brain would subconsciously start seeking out the opportunities. We ran through a number of moving and breathing exercises to get us out of our heads and into our bodies. We worked in a succession of pairs and triplets, asking questions that got deeper and more personal as we went on, peeling back the layers and exposing us to the world for who we really were. As I dug deeper, a memory arose from nowhere. An event that had happened when I must have been only four years old. It was such a minor, trivial incident. My brother played a silly little trick on me that made me cry. And whilst I looked around for comfort, my entire family laughed. Obviously, they were laughing at the trick, but I felt that they were laughing at me. For an adult, this seems completely immaterial. I certainly had had no recollection of the event prior to this exercise. 
However, to that four-year-old version of me, it was huge. In order to protect itself in the future, the brain develops and coping behaviours, seeds which would bloom into my adult life patterns. This was the point where I learned to fear rejection, which over time led me to become a people pleaser. The reason that I helped others, but not myself. This was the point where I started building an emotional wall, when I learned how to compartmentalise. Don't let them see what's really going on inside, because they're only going to laugh at you. Right here is the truth about human conditioning. The patterns that run our life, our behaviours, our drivers, our why, is always born out of trauma. It's just that we may not always be aware of it. Furthermore, our key drivers usually start off with a negative energy. It starts off as a fear of rejection, taking steps to avoid being seen, worrying about losing everything. As long as the drivers stay like that, we will never fully find what we're looking for as we're constantly hiding and running. Of course, our coping mechanisms helps us develop some amazing skills, which is part of the problem because subconsciously we want to hold on to these negative drivers as, they, as they've got us to where we are today. However, if the driver comes from a negative place, then the results will be negative. Our drivers and skills may generate success, but may also create feelings of fear, stress, or anxiety. And the greater the success, the bigger the stress. What we need to do is process that trauma, remove its ability to constrain us, and allow a natural positive energy to flood in. Our skills remain intact, but now they come from a positive place. This can then allow us to become successful and maintain a positive state. In other words, to actually enjoy life. These realisations came to me later. However, whilst I was still in that deep dive intensive session, I still had to process my trauma. In my mind's eye, I pictured my four-year-old self, crying and lonely. I bent down to give him that hug that he so desperately wanted. I then lifted me up onto my adult shoulders and I ran around the room shouting about how amazing this kid was. For the record, nobody really noticed because they were all dealing with their own stuff, which allowed me to just shout and shout and shout about how incredible and loved this child was. Suddenly there was what felt like a huge crash and that 40-year-old wall came tumbling down. Decades of pent-up, held-back emotion washed over me and, as per my intention, the tears erupted. Which didn't stop, even as the exercise came to an end and the organisers brought the session to a close. As they wrapped things up, a combination of overwhelming emotion, bright lights and tears led to me seeing things, a vision. In the style of a 1960s animation, I saw a scene of industrial hell, all factories and smoke. In the foreground, a black blob writhed. I became aware that this blob was a mass of people tied down by nets and chains. 
These constraints represented the subconscious patterns we develop in childhood and the beliefs we absorb from our parents and society, which continue to hold us in check to this very day. Those stories that tell us to settle, to tolerate, to be content with mediocrity. All of a sudden, an arm burst out of the dark mass, ripped the chains apart and stood up. Tall and proud, the figure stepped away from his constraints, ready to set off on his path to freedom and unlimited potential. However, before leaving, he stopped, bent down and helped the next person to their feet. One by one, they helped each other until there was a stream of people walking away from servitude and towards a world of enjoyment. This was it. This was my mission and my purpose unfolding before me, and I was fully connected to it. The electricity flowed through my entire body, and the meaning of what I wanted to do resonated, not just in my brain, but in my heart and my gut as well. I truly was reborn. My new life. Getting connected with my vision has made a massive difference to me. My business plans have developed at a pace and with an ambition that I'd never experienced before. My mission stays the same, to change the measure of success away from sales and profits and towards enjoyment. That includes understanding the factors that are required for enjoyment to exist. Now, however, it actually means something to me. I have been building a community of business owners who share the same values and beliefs as me via a network of low-cost, high-value discussion groups called Breathing Spaces, which explore the business enjoyment model and create a mutual support group for business owners. The plan is to create a model that can be replicated around the world. The more people that join the conversation, the more momentum it will gain. Ultimately, I would like to see business being run on a completely new and different basis. Imagine what the New York Stock Exchange or the FTSE 100 would look like if business success were measured on something more than just money. For the record, I don't know what that looks like either. Not yet, at any rate. Nor does it matter to me whether or not I see it achieved in my lifetime, as long as I can move things in the right direction. Nor does it matter to me whether or not I see achieved in my lifetime, as long as I can move things in the right direction. The pain that a money-focused society creates has recently become even more evident. As I write this, we are in lockdown as a result of the COVID-19 virus, and the expectations are that we are heading into a deep global recession. Much of the pain and suffering that will be experienced will be as a direct result of this reliance on sales and profits has been the main measure of success. On the other hand, I'm also hoping that this period will allow people to appreciate how important the other elements of life are. Family, community, contribution. As devastating as the COVID-19 event has been for families and for business, I'm hopeful that some good will come of it. There will be fundamental changes as to how we run things going forwards. And it is up to us to make sure that they are good changes. That is what is happening for me right now. For you, what are the key things I want you to take away from this chapter?
First of all, I do believe that finding a purpose and being connected to it is important. However, there must never be any pressure on you to find it. Know that it exists somewhere and keep looking for clues. Do what you can to uncover it, but only ever from a place of passionate curiosity, never from desperation or stress. Second, whatever your background or childhood, there will be some deep-seated patterns that you are running that can be changed. The reason may be something incredibly insignificant, seemingly irrelevant to an adult. However, the deeper you dig, the more you will uncover. The more you understand yourself, the easier it will be for you to find happiness and the closer you will be to finding your purpose. Finally, be aware that learning about yourself never stops. Be absolutely content in knowing that there is not a final destination that you have to reach. It is, as they say, all about the journey. There will always be more to learn, more to do, more to uncover. That is part of the enjoyment of life. Every day is an opportunity to rediscover yourself, to see the world with fresh eyes, to be born again. I have had three birthdays to date. I'm totally open. These podcasts are not necessarily here to give you all the answers. I want you to think about what's been said, what's come up, and how you might apply that to your own situation. And if you've enjoyed it, then please subscribe to the podcast and, of course, share it on the social media platforms and so more people get a chance to hear what's going on. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment, and I want you to enjoy your business so much it makes your bits tingle. <laughs>